All right, Salt City, we are continuing our study through Romans chapter 8 this week, and we're really marking a transition from talking about the sin within us to our suffering outside of us. And so the last two verses of the passage that Jordan taught on last week were Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, which said this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we have this great promise that the Holy Spirit is inside of us so that we will be able to face our suffering and walk through it with Jesus. So when we talk about suffering, we know as believers in Jesus that although he has rescued us from Satan's sin and death, that we are not exempted from a life of suffering. So the question is not if we're going to suffer as Christians. The question is when are we going to suffer and how are we going to suffer? And so the main thing that the text we're looking at this morning is going to give us is a perspective. And so basically there's two different ways that you can approach suffering in your life. You can approach suffering as if suffering is like a cancer ward that ends in death, or you can approach suffering as if it is a maternity ward that ends in life. So imagine getting off the elevator at a hospital and you're walking down a hallway, and you don't know what floor you're on. And you hear yelling, and you hear screaming, and you hear groaning. Now, if somebody tells you that you're on a cancer ward, your perspective is going to be very bleak, because you're realizing that there are people dying. But if you realize that you're on a maternity ward, then your perspective is that people are living, that new people are entering into the world, that something good is coming out of the pain. And the perspective that the Apostle Paul wants us to have on our lives is that God is doing something through the pain. So the big idea that's going to tie together what we're talking about this morning is that because of this perspective, suffering with Jesus is worth it. It is worth it to get through the pain of this life hand in hand with Jesus because there is a massive payoff in the end. And so we're going to see three reasons that suffering with Jesus is worth it. The first reason is that creation will be set free. So Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 22 say this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Okay, so we start off these verses with the place where I pulled my thesis for this whole sermon from. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's saying, Christian, let me pull you in and give you some reasons that suffering is worth it. That this present suffering isn't even worth comparing to the hope that we have forever in Jesus. And let me fill you in on what I mean. And you would expect maybe that he would give some really personal examples of what this looks like. But instead, what Paul does is he chooses to give us a drone shot. He's just zooming way, way, way out on the biblical story. And he's telling us something actually about what happened to the creation itself. So normally when we think about the effects of human sin, we think of them about their effects on us. So we think that people, Adam and Eve, sinned in the Garden of Eden. And as a result of that, people fell. So we, as people, are broken. But what Paul wants to see is that the effect of that sin was much deeper and much wider than its effect on us personally. That our sin actually broke the creation itself. This is what he's saying specifically in verse 20. He says the creation was subjected to futility. Now here's what he's saying. We just studied this entire book of Ecclesiastes. And in one commentary I read, it said that the book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary on this one verse. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. The world is like smoke. It's like a vapor. It seems like nothing is going the way that it should and everything is profoundly broken. And if you trace that back, the reason for that is because human beings have rebelled against God. And so what happened is in the rebellion of human beings, not only did people fall, but the creation fell. And this is actually not just owing to human sin, but it's also owing to God's response to human sin. Do you see the second half of verse 20? It says it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, some people would like to say that the creation was subjected to futility by us or by Satan. But this verse will not allow that interpretation because of those two pesky words in hope. Because of him who subjected it in hope. In other words, what this verse is pointing to is that the ultimate reason that the creation is broken and in the state that it's in is because of God's punishment, not only of human beings, but of the creation itself. So our sin and our rebellion were so deep and so profound that not only did we deserve to be punished, but actually the place that we lived 
deserved to be condemned. So I don't know if you've ever seen a story like this on the news, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like when someone decides that it's a good idea to open up a meth lab in their house. Okay, you've seen these stories every once in a while, they come across the news and all of a sudden somebody's just living, maybe it's in a suburban neighborhood and you would have never guessed it, but old Joe's got a meth lab in his basement. And all of a sudden the police find out that there's a meth lab in the basement. And a short time later, not only is Joe in prison, but there's also yellow tape around his house. And not only has he been condemned for his stupid choice, but his place of habitation, his living quarters, his home is also condemned along with him. And likewise, our sin in creation has been so egregious against God that not only have we been condemned as human beings, but creation itself has been condemned, has been broken profoundly. And Paul even says in this text that creation's response is to groan. It's just like, come on, guys. Why did you misuse me this way? Why as human beings, didn't you treat me properly so that I didn't have to absorb the curse along with you? So creation is groaning, but creation is not just groaning. In verse 19, it says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This text literally means that the creation is standing up on its tiptoes, waiting for God's redemptive work to be completed. So the creation is broken, but the creation, even the inanimate creation, knows that Jesus is coming back to make everything right. And so the creation is standing on its tiptoes and it's like, I can't wait to see what God's plan is for his kids, to see his kids transform from these broken people to these wonders. We can't wait to see that. But it's not just that creation standing on its tiptoes, waiting to see what God is going to transform his kids into. But verse 21 says that creation is standing on its tiptoes waiting to be free from its own bondage. It says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back is he's going to make us new and in making us new, in redeeming us, he is also going to make creation new so that creation is no longer groaning in the form of like earthquakes and storms that destroy things and, and tornadoes and, and decay and corruption. But creation is instead going to be rejoicing with new life. Here's the, what that means. Even the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen is a broken sunset. Even the most beautiful place that you've ever been is a broken place, a place that has been profoundly corrupted by the effects of sin and death. 
Just a short time ago, my wife Melissa and I were out in Wyoming and we were hiking through the woods up to this mountain. And there was this place in the woods, this, this narrow path that we're walking on. And you sort of looked off to the left and there were purple flowers and there were pink flowers and there were yellow flowers. And the, the trees had been burned out a short time ago. So there were living trees and there were dead trees. And there was just the most vibrant greens and, and purples. And, and it was one of the most beautiful scenes that I've seen in my life. And all of a sudden I'm looking at that and this text comes to my mind. And I'm saying, wait, this, as beautiful as this is, as captivating as this is, this is a sin-soaked version of God's creation. Now, now just imagine with me, if we can see the glory of God in sunsets and, and in ocean tides and in mountains and, and in all the things of this world, some of us, that's where we connect with God most. And that is a broken version. Imagine what heaven will be like. And you begin to taste what Paul is talking about. He's saying, okay, let's get our eyes off of our suffering for a minute. And let's think about what God has prepared for those who love him. He says, get your eyes on this moment when the sons of God will be revealed in all their glory and then creation will bloom with new life. And you'll see sunsets and mountains and the Grand Canyon. This world will be renewed before our eyes. Okay, so we'll be in this new creation. But what's going to happen to us? Let's fill in a little bit what it looks like for the sons of God to be revealed. And the answer to that question, according to this text, is that we, as God's children, will be fully adopted. Okay. Verses 23 and 24 say this, and not only the creation, okay, it's not just that the creation is going to be made new. We are too, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay. So there's this picture in this text of us as the people of God groaning, waiting to be adopted. And you might be thinking, wait, wait, wait. Didn't Jordan say last week from Romans chapter eight, verse 15, that we already have been adopted. Now let's go revisit that text again. Okay. Romans eight, verse 15 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there's this reality that we are God's children, but we are not yet fully God's children. See, he doesn't say that you've been fully adopted and that the deal is done. But what he says is that the spirit of adoption has been given to you. And the way that Paul clarifies that in the text that we're looking at is he describes the spirit 
as the first fruits. So he's using an agricultural metaphor. So if you're harvesting corn, the first fruits would be a small piece of the larger field. So it is of the same kind as the rest of the field, but it is not the fullness of the harvest. And in a similar way, you have been given the first fruits of your adoption, which means that what you have in the Holy Spirit is of the same kind. It's a relational reality with God that lasts forever, but it is not the fullness of what God has for you. And so Paul fills in his meaning. He actually tells us exactly what's in his mind. It's not left to mystery here. Here's what's missing. Adoption as sons, this is the last part of verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. Now, here's why this is really good news. Because if God were to put you as you are in a new, fully redeemed creation, where there's real sunsets and real mountains, you wouldn't be able to handle it. You wouldn't be able to enjoy it. Because you're not fit for that place. You need a new body. Because there's a couple things that are wrong with our bodies that we've been discussing in Romans chapter 8. The first thing is sin. We've got this pesky flesh. And even though the Holy Spirit has come to live in us, and we are fighting the good fight, and we're seeking to put to death our old sinful nature, we can't get rid of the flesh. And so we wake up and we're not ready to praise and worship God. We're ready to groan and complain and we're frustrated and we're angry and we're still struggling with those same old sins that we were struggling with 10 years ago and we're just frustrated. And Paul says that when our bodies are redeemed, that that sin nature will be gone. So it's good news, the redemption of your body. You'll get a new body that doesn't even want to sin. You won't even want to sin anymore. Isn't that amazing? And the second thing about this new body is that it will no longer suffer and die. At the end of the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eye. What causes us tears in this life more than our physical pain and suffering that leads those around us whom we love to death and will eventually lead to our death. We feel that so viscerally right now. There was uh, one gal on our staff team as we were talking about this reality. She said, I'm just looking forward to COVID being over so that I don't have to wake up every morning. And when I feel a tickle in my throat, I think, do I have COVID? Am I going to die? And we were all laughing, but relating to that, we live in this time where we're so aware of how a virus can affect our physical body and could lead to suffering and to death. And in heaven, we won't be worried about that anymore. As we walk on the new earth, we won't worry about that anymore because we'll be given a body that cannot die. Now, as I was thinking about this, this reminded me of the adoption process that Melissa and I went through with Luke and Emma. 
So our oldest two kids are adopted from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And sort of the first step in the adoption process is you fill out a bunch of paperwork. And then eventually, after that paperwork is done, you send a photo of yourselves to your kids and you basically declare to them that you're their parents. But the adoption is not complete until you bring them home. And so I remember when Luke and Emma came home, their bodies were profoundly broken. Just a few examples. Luke, in his first year home, from age two to age three, grew nine inches because he was so malnourished. And so we were just giving him milk and giving him pasta and giving him good vegetables and fruits. And he just shot up like a weed. He grew nine inches. Our daughter, Emma, had malaria and tuberculosis. And so we were able to get her the medicines that she needed so that her body could be restored. And both of our kids had parasites. And so their intestines and and all of their uh, internal workings were just completely messed up. And so we had to get them medication so that their bodies could be restored. And so in a way, their adoption was completed by the redemption of their bodies. And to a much greater extent, God is saying, okay, I've given you the first fruits. You've got my picture. And I'm telling you this, I'm coming to get you. And it's not to leave you as you are. Heaven is not just a better version of earth. It is a completely different kind of existence. So your body now is like a squash compared to the body that you will have in heaven forever. The capabilities are really beyond our imagination. So a few things that I was thinking of that would be amazing, that are probably true about our heavenly bodies. There's a lot of conjecture in this, but I think it's good to dream about what it could be like. Maybe you'll run and never get tired. Can you imagine that? Just run and run and run. And by the way, your hips and knees won't be crooked anymore. And so you just be able to run like up a huge glorified mountain and you won't get tired. Okay, you'll only ever desire good things. You'll only ever desire God himself. There won't even be moments in this new existence where your heart strays away from who God is to other things. You'll only want him. Your worship will always be genuine. There'll be no hypocrisy. There'll be no sin to confess. You will be totally satisfied in God. And you'll be able to eat and never have to stop because your stomach will never hurt. And so you'll just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and a million other things. This is a new body. Your new body will be so glorious that if you saw who you would be now, you would fall down and worship yourself. And then your head would probably explode. Because it would be so amazing and so blinding. You would be the most glorious creature you have ever laid your eyes on. 
That's what God wants to do in us. That's what the revealing of the sons of God, that's, that's a taste of what it's going to be like. So here's the question. Okay, what do we do now? How do we move in hope toward that reality with our present weakness? And the answer Paul gives is the spirit helps us. Verses 26 through 27 say this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's what this text is saying. It is saying that Christianity is not about willpower. The answer to facing your sufferings is not try harder. It's not do more. The answer to our present suffering is to trust that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Because here's the reality we are very weak and unimpressive people. Paul illustrates this in the text. He says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Okay, have you ever dealt with this, specifically dealing with just the ordinary suffering of your life? It's like, you don't know whether to pray, God, take away my pain or give me the strength to endure my pain. And maybe you've been praying about something in your life that is so heavy and so hard for so long that you are just exhausted with praying and you don't know what to pray anymore. And here's the good news for you is that Paul changes the subject from you to him. He changes the subject. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we can get in this mindset of what I'm going to call ought Christianity. So we know how we ought to pray. We ought to pray like the Psalms lay out for us to pray. We ought to pray like Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we know how we ought to pray, but the problem is we're so pathetic and weak that we don't know how to do what we know that we ought to do. So here's what Paul does. This is going to maybe, for those of you who, who want an application, this is going to make you uncomfortable. Because Paul doesn't give an application, he gives an assurance. And here's the assurance that he gives. But, look at that word but, I love the word but in the scripture, because it changes the subject. He says, we don't know how to pray for as we ought, but the spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep 
for words. So here's the first problem we have in prayer is we don't know how to go deep enough. We don't even know how to face our pain. And, and life is often so viscerally painful that even to bring our pain into the presence of God almost seems like an impossibility. And so we go to God and we're trying to be fully honest with him. But the reality is we can't even get to the depths of our emotional life. We can't even understand why we're in such pain. And here's Paul's assurance. The Holy Spirit's doing it for you. The Holy Spirit knows the depth of your pain. The Holy Spirit knows the depth of your agony. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, assuring you that you're a child of God, but not only assuring you that you're a child of God, but actually groaning for you. So, so this is what I imagine. It's like, we're going to God and we're like, I'm in so much pain and so much agony. I don't even know how to get through this. And the Holy Spirit is like our hype man who's like standing next to us, interceding for us. And all he's doing is just going, oh, and God's like, oh, now I understand. Because we're not even able to express our groanings. But the Holy Spirit is there groaning in the presence of God for us, taking the emotional pressure off of us to grieve about the sufferings in our life in the correct way and taking on that pressure for us and actually perfectly groaning in our place. But it's not just that the spirit groans for us. It says that he who searches hearts, this is verse 27, knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So it's not just in prayer that we're not honest enough, or we don't know how to groan deeply enough, or we don't know how to grieve over the pain in this world fully enough, or that we don't have enough compassion. But the other problem is we're not focused enough. We're not purposeful enough. We ought to pray. Remember, Jesus said, your kingdom come and your will be done. We ought to be laser focused on the great commission. But here's what we are, especially when we try to get up at six o'clock in the morning and pray. We're distracted. We're not often praying according to the will of God. We're often falling asleep like the disciples did in the garden of Gethsemane, or we're drifting off into praying for our own wants and desires or daydreaming about our next vacation or struggling with lust when we're trying to pray. And here's what the Holy Spirit says, not try harder, do more, read a book about prayer, but I am going to have your back. I'm going to intercede for you before the throne of God. So here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is translating our junky prayers into amazing prayers that God can actually hear and answer. So here's what God does. This is absolutely incredible and amazing. It's been blowing my mind this week. God is taking the pressure off of our prayers by taking the burden of our prayers onto himself so that God actually translates your prayers so that they become what you would pray if you knew everything that God knows. Okay, have you ever written an email that you regret? Have you ever typed up an email or maybe you get to the very end of it and you're like, I don't think that I should send 
this yet. And so I've done this before. I've gotten to the point where I'm about to send an email. And instead of sending it, I actually send it to one person or a group of people that I trust who can filter that email. And what always happens is I send that email to that group of people. And what they do is they filter it. They edit the email for me and then they send it back. And it always goes better when somebody edits the email for me. Because then the email that I should have sent initially is the one that gets sent in the end. The Holy Spirit is the editor of your prayers to God. It's like all of your prayers first go to the Holy Spirit and then he takes them and they're, they're terrible. Your prayers are terrible, just like mine. We don't know how to pray as we ought. The apostle Paul saying that we certainly are in that category. Actually, I've never met somebody in the church who thinks that they're awesome at praying. I, I just think this is universally true. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he edits those prayers and then brings them into the presence of God. Okay, so what's the application? Is it, okay, the Holy Spirit's editing our prayers, so we don't really need to work on our prayer life? No. The calling for us is knowing that the Holy Spirit edits our prayers. We come boldly to God. We pray. We're not worried about praying dear Jesus prayers. We're not worried about trying to filter everything ourselves. We're able to just have this honest child to father relationship with God in the midst of our very real suffering. And in that type of relationship, we taste what God made us for. So some of you might be wondering at this point, is this hope for me of seeing creation set free, of being fully adopted, of getting the Spirit's help in my prayer life? Is this hope for me? And let me give you some assurance from Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Just a reminder of the simple message of the gospel. It says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. These promises are for those who have said, you know what? I can't deserve or earn God's favor like a laborer working for his wages. But instead, I must believe that God is the kind of God who declares wrong people right, who says to people who don't do what they ought to do. He tells people like us, I love you. And he loves us not on the basis of who we are, but he loves us on the basis of what Jesus has done in our place on the cross. So let's look to Jesus. Let's hope in Jesus Let's believe that our future is secure and that our help is inside us in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And let's go and face our suffering with confidence this week. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the precious and very great promises of Romans chapter 8. 
we have a tendency to be despondent and self-focused. We have a tendency to live under this cloud of the oughts in our lives. I ought to share the gospel more. I ought to pray better. I ought to serve around the house more. I ought to help more people. I ought to be a better Christian. And thank you for changing the subject from ought to done. In Christ and in the Holy Spirit, would you cause our focus to go off of what we should have done onto what you have done and are doing in our lives? And when we think about that, we are filled with hope. Would you fill us with hope to face our suffering? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.